Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1 to 3, Daniel's prayer for his people. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent and meek, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these your precious words. Just as you give wisdom and understanding, Lord God, to Daniel, we pray you also give us wisdom and understanding now as Andy preached into your word and that we may have ears and eyes to understand how we can apply your word into our life even today. We ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Do you ever find it difficult to keep track of what God is up to in your life as an individual or in the world around you? And do you find it tricky to stay on track with the calling that God has given you in your life? Well, me too. Um, especially during times of transition, of change, where I'm going from one circumstance to another. For example, the end of lockdown, or at least the lessening of lockdown. These kinds of things can often throw me. But when I've been reading through the life of Daniel during this series, I've learned some amazing lessons from him because he seems to always be ready to do the right thing at the right time. And I want to learn from him. I, I haven't learned these lessons absolutely, but I'm just going to start by sharing three lessons that I'm trying to learn from Daniel as we go forwards. The first one is this. He never quite got over the jet lag. In October, hopefully, my wife and I and our daughter are going to go to Singapore to see some of our family. Now, we're really excited, but there's always that moment when you uh, land in Singapore or uh, another country and you try and adapt, don't you? You uh, change your habits, you change your routines, all in aid of trying to acclimatise to get your body clock tuned to a different environment. But then there's that dilemma, because if you know that you're coming back in about two weeks' time... There's certain things that you probably shouldn't change because you're going to have to adapt all the way back again and it might be even more difficult. Now, uh, when the Israelites were taken out of Jerusalem and the surrounding area and taken into captivity in Babylon, one of their prophets, Jeremiah, said to them, OK, when you land in Babylon, settle down, build houses, start families, work in, the, in that environment, settle in. But at the same time, be ready, because after a period of 70 years, God is going to come and bring you back. Now, that creates a tension immediately, doesn't it? But what I see in this at the beginning of chapter nine is Daniel absolutely ready, raring to go. Now, remember, he's an old man at this point. He's lived in Babylon for the majority of his life. 
He's become very successful. He's he's blended in with the crowd. And so he's achieved and gone through the various different Babylonian ranks and he's become prestigious. He's now in the Persian Empire and seemingly doing well. And in all of this, he's never lost sight of God's plan. He's always kept track. And I've found myself asking the question, well, how does he do it? I think there's a little hint later on in the chapter in verse 21. Verse 21 is Daniel kind of just commenting on when all of this was happening. Uh, But there's a remarkable comment, which I don't think is coincidental. I don't think there's any throwaway comments in the Bible. Um, I don't think the Holy Spirit wastes his breath. So it's there for a reason. And it, it struck me. He remarks that all of this was happening, he says, at the time of the evening sacrifice or the evening tribute offering this was one of the sacrifices that was part of God's elaborate timetable or calendar system that he had given to his people and his law and especially the calendar was given to them in order a bit like a metronome uh, teaching them a rhythm of life that helped them to learn the right way to live It was a helpful sort of metronome to keep them on track with his plans, with his ways, what he was doing in the world. Well, that was the point anyway, until they disobeyed it. But here I see Daniel in some way keeping track of all of that, because you've got to remember a tribute offering hadn't been offered for over half a century Daniel would have only been a young boy, probably, when he was in Jerusalem. These offerings were offered in the temple. Now, for over half a century, the temple has been destroyed and he's been in a foreign land. So he hasn't seen any of this happening. And yet, somehow, his watch still still seems to be set to Jerusalem time. Still in the back of his mind, he is aware of the sacrificial system that was going on. He has learned the deep lessons, the principles that God was trying to teach him. So what I learned from him, I think, is that although he'd adapted in an amazing way to Babylon, as he was told to do, he'd also actively designed his life in a way to keep the most important things about God at the forefront of his mind. For example, we know that he prayed regularly. Chapter 6 refers to him praying three times a day, which explains to me why he was so ready to pray here. If you pray regularly, you will be ready to pray. If you don't pray regularly, you will find it hard to come to pray when you really need to, because it's not part of your habits. It's not part of your system. It's not part of your body clock. Um, You could say it in this way, good intentions are only sustained by good habits. And that seems to be the case with Daniel. This habit also, though, we notice this, this habit got him in trouble because it was so countercultural. It didn't fit with the metronome of Babylon. Certain things that he did fitted in fine, but certain things that he actively put into his life in order to stay on track with God, didn't fit with the Babylonian metronome and therefore got him in trouble because they were so countercultural. Which has just got me asking the question, if my life looks like everyone else is around me, 
then eventually my priorities will change to mirror theirs. Because our habits teach us what's most important in our lives. So for me, this has been a challenge. One example is prioritising life group. I'm naturally um, independent, or I like to think that way, and I would prefer sometimes personal time rather than community time. But putting life group in my calendar and then organising my life around it has enabled me to learn the importance of community, the importance of a diverse community affecting my life. That's one example. You might have others. The second thing I've learned from Daniel is that he believed the Bible. This maybe doesn't sound overly profound, but I come across now in Alpha or um, on campuses speaking at universities, I come across quite a few people who read the Bible but don't believe the Bible. For them, reading the Bible is either the right thing to do because it's just been passed down in tradition or it's a good thing for you. It's a kind of self-help book um, where you'll pick and choose nice bits that really help you for the day, which is okay But for me, that's a bit like just eating the Brussels sprouts in a Christmas dinner. Yeah, they're good for you on some level, but you're missing out on so much. For Daniel, he seems to have read the Bible in the same way, or for the same reason that people check the football scores in the mornings, they check the stock markets on the way to work, and they check the weather forecast before they leave. It's to find out what has happened and why, what is happening and why, and what will happen and why. And for that reason, I don't think Daniel would have panicked at the idea of this enormous transition occurring. Empires rising, empires falling, his people being taken back into into Jerusalem, all these kinds of things. He wouldn't have feared the unknown because it wouldn't have been unknown. He wouldn't have said, oh, we're heading into the unknown. Who knows what's going to happen? Because God's word has given more than enough knowledge for us to be confident that he is in charge of the future. And I think we can hold on to that too, if we learn to believe the Bible in the same way that Daniel did. And then thirdly, Daniel played his part. Daniel seemed to know what was important. He seemed to know what needed to be done. And he was willing to step up and take the responsibility to do what needed to be done. Our society, I think, and I find it in myself as well, is full of people who know what needs to be done, but are not willing to step up to take responsibility to do what needs to be done. Whereas Daniel really did. He'd read this in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Daniel didn't leave praying 
which was what was necessary in this situation to others. He didn't say, others will do that, I'm comfortable, I'll sit back, I've done enough. No, he didn't leave that to chance. But he took God at his word and said, because I believe the Bible, God has called us to call on him. And said, when 70 years are up, we call on him, we seek him. And that is exactly what Daniel does. And when he does it, he gives us a masterclass in confession. Now, uh, online, you can do multiple different masterclasses. You might have seen this, where experts in their field teach some of the tricks and tips to their success. Uh, so my wife has been learning how to play basketball from Steph Curry uh, from our lounge. Um, I've been learning hostage negotiation from our kitchen. Um, Daniel here gives us a masterclass in confession, which unusually wasn't one of the topics on the website. But I think it was absolutely central to his success, you could say. And I think it's vital for us to learn how to confess to God. And so here is Daniel's masterclass in confession. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This was God saying to Daniel, look at me when you're speaking to me. This is face to face prayer. It's not shying away from anything. This is honest and open. And we also see that Daniel doesn't just fit God in to his normal schedule, which he could have done. He prays three times a day anyway, but he moved his calendar. He shifted everything so that he could make the most important thing the most important thing and pray and confess on behalf of himself and his people. The first lesson I learn is that he starts by confessing about God before anything else. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts by using God's personal name, Yahweh. He knows how invested God is in all of this. And this is a personal prayer. It's not um, impersonal. It's not sort of uh, not treating God as an independent character in all of this. This is personal with God. And also... Daniel knows what God has written and he uses that as fuel for his prayer. At the background of this prayer is mainly Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah. But also a master's student has put this list together. It just shows the wealth of scripture that is influencing Daniel's prayer. And this teaches me a lesson of using scripture to influence how, my, how I pray. Um, but notice at the beginning of this confession, he's starting by confessing what he knows about God from God's word. That's a good place to start. Then he names it and claims it. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. First of all, Daniel was a young boy when he was taken out of, uh, out of Jerusalem. He could have just blamed everyone else, blamed his ancestors and everyone else, but he recognises that he is also part of the problem. He is a sinner as well as anyone else. He's not a saint floating two feet off the ground. He's like everyone else. So this is not a royal we. This is a personal we. He doesn't water it down. He also, he, he names the sin. We learned this in our Liberating Confession series, that confession is agreeing with God about the verdict. It's not coming up with our own verdict that slightly dilutes 
the, the crime. But he uses multiple different words that are quite strong because I think we should name it for what it is when we call it sin. Don't just call it messing up or uh, going slightly wrong. It's sin. Number three, recognize the advice that you've ignored. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. Daniel's recognizing that there was a lot of good advice that they had actively ignored or not trusted. And I think we should pause. If we find ourselves in a situation where we are actively not um, going with the advice of wise people who we respect, then we really need to consider, need to pause and reflect what's going on. Fourthly, compare yourself to God, not to others. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, he repeats himself, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers. Because we have sinned against you. Immorality is not just uh, whether it harms me or harms others or whether someone finds out about it. It is a direct violation of a personal moral God. Every sin is a sin ultimately against God himself. And Daniel recognises this. And that I think is so important again for us to recognize that if we are in sin and it's not really or we're doing stuff and we could say well it's not hurting anyone it's not having a bad effect on me and really no one's called me out on it yet that's still sin if it's a violation of god fifthly remember that there was always a chance to turn back to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. God had given them warning after warning because he wanted them to turn and receive forgiveness. That's why this section starts to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. He'd sent his prophets like the friendliest of bailiffs, putting letter through the door saying, look, if you don't pay your council tax, we will have to repossess your house we don't want to we want you to pay but if you continue to ignore this and what you found in Israel were just a pile of opened bailiff letters that have completely been ignored 
There was always a chance to turn back. God was offering mercy and forgiveness. And that's still the case for you. Now, I think the big lesson from Daniel at the moment that I'm learning from this confession is he's warning us. He's warning everyone who reads this to not wait and see whether God will be true to his word. There are warnings in scripture for a reason. And sometimes we kind of think, well, if I just carry on in this sin and I will find out because there's been no bad consequences so far. And Daniel's saying, no, no, no. God is incredibly patient and incredibly merciful and very forgiving and steadfast in his love. But he will not be mocked and you can't take the mickey out of him. And eventually he will bring down the sin upon you or the just uh, payment penalty for your sin so don't keep going don't keep sinning thinking well I'll just wait to see if things go badly I think Daniel's saying to us no turn now and then seventhly appeal to God directly and now O Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned we have done wickedly O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. I think in this I see that Daniel's recognising God is more invested in this than even he is. It was God who saved them out of Egypt. It's God who's shown his righteous acts over and over again to deliver his people. Daniel knows that it is in God's um, interest or it's God's desire to deliver his people again. If God has given us his one and only son, of course he's going to give us all other things. That shows us how much he is invested in this. How much he wants us to be forgiven. And then eighthly, ask God to do the humanly impossible. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. What Daniel's asking God to do is like the ultimate grand designs, this project, uh, this uh, TV program that takes old buildings and makes them into something wonderful and brand new. But this is like the impossible version. It's just a heap of ruins covered in tree roots and thistles and, uh, uh, and thorns and really bad soil. And they're asking God to make an amazing temple on top of it. That's essentially what he's asking God to do. Make your face shine, your face of uh, your face of favour shine upon your sanctuary, which is currently desolate. And it's desolate because it was desolated because God's people had rebelled against him. Daniel is asking God to essentially resurrect the dead, which is what we ask God to do every time we say, forgive us our sins. A humanly impossible feat to truly deal with sin. Not just bury it in the ground and forget about it, but truly deal with sin. Only God can do that. 
But that's why we should go to God directly to ask him to do it. And then finally, hallowed be your name. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel has the same priority in his prayer that Jesus had and Jesus teaches us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That was Jesus's driving force in life. The glory of God's name. But he also knew, Daniel also knows, that the glory of God's name is attached to the good of God's people because God has given his name to his people. It's like someone giving their surname to you so that they are now one with you. Therefore, what happens to them happens to you. God is so loving that he has given his name to us. And so as we call on him, Lord, glorify your name. This is our ultimate priority, that you would be honoured in everything. You're the creator of all of this. We can know with certainty that as God does that, it will bring about our good as well. What a remarkable confession we've just seen. And hopefully it teaches us some amazing lessons. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 to 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Now, this passage in Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most widely understood passages in the Bible. The issue is that width of understanding is caused by disagreement. No one seems to know what all of these details mean, and I am not going to claim to do so. In life groups during the week, I will provide a resource to try and help us go a little bit deeper. But 
uh, I don't want to miss the wood for the trees. And I think we have in front of us verse 24 really encapsulating the main point that I think this message from the angel Gabriel is getting at. It says 70 weeps or 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Gabriel was saying to Daniel, look, even when your people go back from exile into their homeland, that is not the end of the ultimate exile. And I think that's the message we need to hear as well, that even when we go out of lockdown in some fashion into the rest of our lives, that's not the end of the ultimate lockdown. Mike Skinner and the Streets released an album just a couple of weeks ago called None of Us Are Getting Out of This Life Alive. And I think that hits the nail on the head. The thing that has so scared us about COVID will not go away when COVID goes away death see a modern philosophy tells us to not worry about death don't think about death it's so far away just eke out every bit of meaning from life enjoy life Uh, live life to the full because that's all there is don't worry about death that would put a downer on it but that was kind of undermined when everyone started worrying about death when covid arrived and it seemed like death was getting potentially a bit closer to many of us But I think it revealed something good. It revealed that underneath, deep down inside of us, even if we try and block our ears to it, there is a metronome. There is a ticking noise. Now, there's that first ticking noise, the the Captain Hook and the crocodile ticking noise of this crocodile of death coming closer and closer. And many people just spend their whole lives trying to avoid it until ultimately, eventually it catches up with them because it will for all of us. But I think hopefully what many of us have learned is that there is another noise, another metronome going on in the background. It's just sometimes a bit fainter, but it's deeper inside of us. It it, it reminds us or it's telling us or it's attuning us to what I call the rhythm of eternal life. It's the ultimate satisfaction that I think all of us are longing for. We feel it in some way at the moment. As we are longing to see loved ones, relatives, friends, family and be close and be embraced. There is that yearning that has grown inside of us during this time. But even when we get to that point, there is a deeper yearning in every human heart to be in the embrace of the one who loves us more than any friend or family ever could. Our creator God. And in order for that to happen, the exile truly needs to be over. The lockdown needs to be fully finished. And that can only happen with a certain evening sacrifice. See, this exile is our separation from God. It is caused by sin, what we've just looked at in Daniel's confession. And the lockdown is death. It's that ultimate separation from God for eternity. And that can only be resolved only be turned around by one evening sacrifice that happened, let's say, about 490 years after Daniel um, got this message from Gabriel. 
This is where we see the wood for the trees. And man, hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. Experiencing the ultimate exile as he is cut off from the presence of God in the most abominable act of history as creation murders its creator. Who was then raised three days later, having opened the door of death and therefore also being raised up as a prince of a new promised land. And he invites everyone to come and join him. And he sends us his eternal righteousness, the right to be in God's presence once again, reunited with God, the one who loves us, but we have separated ourselves from. That eternal righteousness comes to us as a free gift from the prince on high in heaven. And he sends us his anointing. He anoints his most holy place which is now his people. Those who are watching this right now, who are believing in him, it could be you if you are considering believing in him. You will experience the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life that makes these things reality and also draws you into a new reality. Because what he teaches us to do is change our watches. It's to set our clocks, not to Babylonian time or London time, but heavenly time, the new promised land. It's the the Holy Spirit. He helps us to tune our lives to make the most of what we have in front of us in this world, but always be living with the future in mind because we are currently in a foreign land, every single one of us. And we're not meant to fully feel at home because he's going to come. Jesus is going to come to take us home and the Holy Spirit helps us trains us to live in that tension of two worlds and that's what we want to ask him to do now I want to finish just by reading a small passage from Galatians that kind of summarizes all of this amazingly well it says this Christ who is the anointed one it's similar it's the same word the anointed one redeems us from the curse of the law that ultimate curse of lockdown due to our sin, that lockdown of death. And also, more specifically, the Jewish law had given them a curse that they needed to be freed from. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cut off in our place. He experienced the full penalty for our sin in our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God had predicted that ultimately the curse would fall on one who was hung on a tree and he fulfilled that promise. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the promise of a new promised land in the presence of God, might come to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people as well. So that we, we all, Jews and Gentiles, might receive the promised spirit, anointing from heaven through faith. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our creator, our God. Thank you for your investment into this world, giving your son who was cut off and experienced the ultimate exile in our place so that we might be reunited with you, so that we might go from being foreigners from you to being your family. 
And thank you for your Holy Spirit that you pour out from heaven, the anointing from heaven that now makes these things real in our hearts. And I pray that he would empower us to live this difficult life in tension. But with our minds set on things above, with our watches tuned to heavenly time as you are leading us home. I pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.